Well, hello and uh, welcome to another episode of GUcast. Uh, this is Declan Murphy, a urologist here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Um, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Dr. Renu Epen, urologist here as well. Hello, Renu. Good morning, Declan. It's good to be here just on the back of a virtual ASCO meeting. Yes. So this is our first uh, post-virtual ASCO podcast. And we're running a few of these in the next uh, few days, uh, focusing on different GU oncology themes. And today is prostate cancer. So uh, we're also uh, joined in studio by, again, uh, by our colleague, Associate Professor Arun Azad, medical oncologist here at Peter Mac. Um, good morning, Arun. Good morning, Declan and uh, Renu, and thank you for the latest start time today for this uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, we did. We we did bring him in. We dragged him in at very six a.m. Six a.m. before a, the coffee shops opened. That's right. Yeah, yes. no, it was much more suited to a physician this time. <laughs> it was <laughs> chatting to a European, I think. Uh, but we're not, we're not chatting to a European today. But we are chatting to another um, great friend of ours. We're joined on Zoom by um, our friend um, uh, and colleague, Dr. Oliver Sarto. Uh, GU medical oncologist uh, from Tulane. So we're going live over to New Orleans this morning. Um, good evening to you, Oliver. Well, good evening to you or good morning, whichever might be appropriate, but I'm delighted to be here and uh, have the first post-ESCO discussion on your podcast. Yes, well, thank you. And it's lovely to see you on our screens here uh, at Peter Mac. You've been here, of course, in in, uh, in Melbourne many times. And um, as we were just chatting before, we, we miss uh, having our friends come to visit. But uh, at least these uh, sort of forums, podcasts and Zoom and virtual meetings give us a chance to chat. And uh, I suppose before we, we kick off, and we're going to try over the next 30 minutes to just get through some of the, the really big highlights, the big messages that we're, we're all interested in, um, but we could spend hours talking about um, ASCO prostate cancer, of course. Um, but before before we do that, um, what did you think uh, of the virtual ASCO experience, uh, Oliver? How was it for you? Well, you know, I, I learned a lot, but I didn't have as much fun. It, <laughs> you know, as you mentioned, seeing your friends, seeing your colleagues, being able to grab a glass of wine, go out to dinner. You know, that's part of the ASCO experience and probably the richest part where you can relax a little bit and discuss a little bit about science but at the same time, see your friends and catch up a bit. And that part I miss. Yeah, I'm sure we did all. And it is hard to imagine, especially those super gigantic large-scale meetings like ASCO, you know, you know continuing or at least restarting uh, in their present form in these gigantic conference centers with you know, thousands of hotel rooms, etc. Um, anytime soon, I think there will, there will, will, it'll be a hybrid type of format. I'm sure there will be physical meetings, but I, I just think the scale of the physical meeting will contract. We won't be walking two kilometers to the next poster session to sit in a room with maybe a small number of people and it's all kitted out for the... AV and so on. I suspect that uh, hybrid meetings will will be the future. Um, so we have a few uh, topics that we've already agreed with you uh, beforehand by email. Um, uh, we're going to be joined by Michael Hoffman, our NukeMed colleague, in a few minutes to talk about the, some of the PSMA themed highlights, which were clearly you know quite a big deal this year um, at ASCO. But before we come on to that, before Michael joins us, um, what I thought we would ask your thoughts on first are the um, the two neoadjuvant uh, studies that were presented um, in the prostate cancer oral session. And so we, we haven't got time to sort of run through the detail of these two studies, but anyone who's seen it or indeed looked at the Euro Today website, which has some great summaries of all the, uh, the ASCO highlights, uh, briefly, these were um, similar patient populations, so patients with classic sort of high-risk um, prostate cancer that we know have high biochemical recurrence um, uh, failure rates and so on. Uh, and in both studies, both the one um, led by um, uh, Eleni at MD Anderson and the one uh, led by uh, Mary Ellen Taplin um, uh, uh, the other side of the US, 
Um, they were randomized. They were both randomized studies, and the patients um, all got ADT in every arm. Uh, and in each of the arms, they had increasingly, increasingly intensive um, uh, androgen suppression. So ADT plus apalutamide plus or minus abiraterone, and vice versa in these studies. Um, uh, 120 uh, in one study, uh, and um, how many was in the other? 65 in the other. So similar, you know, the sort of size I suppose we've seen uh, in neoadjuvant studies um, uh, over the years. Um, and I'll ask you for your thoughts on it because my thoughts are that you know when we look at uh, classic. Um, outcome measures in these neoadjuvant studies like pathological complete response or minimal residual disease rates i think i think the results are pretty dismal you know complete response rates of three or four percent and 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 minimal residual disease rates of you know uh, 10 to 20 percent or thereabouts Um, what are your thoughts on on what these two oral abstracts um, uh, told us about neoadjuvant strategies for high-risk prostate cancer you know i I have a tendency to think about clinical practice because I am a practitioner in addition to being a translational scientist. And what I'll say is that I'm still trying to really determine exactly how this is going to influence the patients that I see in my clinic. I have been underwhelmed with the data today in terms of the actual uh, pathologic effects. Uh, there's a little bit of clinical effects, and Mary Ellen Taplin has presented a little longer follow-up indicating that there might be some clinical effects for those individuals who have a, a, a very nice pathologic response. But does it really make a difference? We're going to need a different type of trial design, a different type of endpoint. And so far, I'll tell you that it's not that impressive to me. Now, maybe I'm just looking at it with the wrong lens. Maybe I'll be more happy when I get to see longer-term follow-up. But right now, I'm not that impressed by what I see. I'm not sure it's going to change clinical practice as much as, as this endeavor might hope to at this time. And similarly, with the PUNCH study, I suppose, bringing uh, docetaxel into that setting, again, very large study, but we haven't seen a, a big needle shift uh, run, have we, in these neoadjuvant strategies? And, and uh, um, uh, it, there are some finer elements of uh, Eleni's study about the, the tissue um, uh, predictive markers they used on the tissue, on the biopsies, et cetera, that maybe we're drilling into. But do you think we're, we're barking up the wrong three on these, these neoadjuvant strategies? Yeah, Declan, I mean, it's a great point, and I agree with Oliver that, y- you know, the first question I have is, uh, when I look at these studies, is is this going to make a difference to patients? We can we can do biological studies and translational research, but is this going to make a difference? And you know, neoadjuvant studies in 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 prostate have been going on for the better part of two decades, and I don't know that we've shifted the needle in that time, um, not substantially. So, I admire the persistence, and you know, you do get rich uh, repositories of of, bio, of tissue for for biomarker analysis, but. I don't think we've uh, shifted the needle. So we're a bit cool on that, I think. And uh, Renu, so on, on a different slant for neoadjuvant uh, strategies, um, you're now doing a PhD on a, a study that we just opened last week, actually. That's right, the lutectomy trial, uh, part of our Movember Foundation grant trials. And 
we're uh, about to start recruiting uh, soon. We've got our first patient lined up and this is looking at, uh, at uh, lutetium PSMA uh, given prior to radical prostatectomy in men with high-risk localised prostate cancer. Um, we're hoping to recruit 20 patients uh, over the next couple of years and the first 10 will get one cycle um, and uh, hoping to, to increase that to two cycles for the second uh, cohort of patients. So we're really excited. We've, uh, we've got patient number one lined up. Yeah, so we can chat about that in more detail another time. I know Oliver has a lot of interest in this and we'll, we'll move into PSMA now, but that's the idea, not doing an ADT strategy, but instead taking patients with a very high SUV max uh, and giving them some lutetium pre-op to see what we see. Uh, and actually, dosimetry is our primary endpoint. And we'll come back and, and speak to you about that, Oliver, because you're very knowledgeable on this radiologan therapy area. But on, on that note, and um, we will move now to talk about some of the PSMA highlights uh, from ASCO. And I'm pleased to see that um, Michael Hoffman, uh, has joined us um, uh, on the Zoom call as well. Michael, good morning to you. Uh, Michael Hoffman, uh, a professor in our nuclear medicine department here um, and who leads many of our PSMA imaging and indeed therapy uh, trials uh, at Peter Mac. And Michael, uh, before you come on the line, what I want to do is uh, just play you a little snippet um, of Oliver Sartor, um, our guest this morning. Um, he was on Euro Today yesterday discussing highlights from uh, the meeting um, uh, with Alicia Morgans, and here's what he had to say about the therapy study. Well, first of all, let me say that I wish I were so clever as the Australians, because they always seem to come up with such great trial names and nomenclature. So uh, I, I'm not as clever as they are. <laughs> so what, what about that for an introduction, uh, Oliver? That's a surprise to you. I stole that off uh, Euro today um, this morning. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm in total admiration. I don't know how you guys do it. So... Therapy is just perfect, absolutely perfect. Uh, so, Michael, good morning. Good morning, Declan and uh, colleagues. Uh, thank you, Oliver, for that uh, wrap of the therapy name. I must admit, I find trial acronyms that don't tell you something about the actual trial annoying. I want to be able to look at the acronym and know something about the trial. And therapy is a hybrid of uh, Theranostics and PSMA, that's what it stands for, therapy, Theranostics, and the P is for PSMA. We actually need to credit Ian Davis, who's the lead medical oncology investigator. He came up with that acronym, and I loved it at first sight, so we went with it. So we want to talk about three uh, abstracts that were presented in the uh, in the oral uh, prostate cancer session at Virtual ASCO. Um, therapy was one of those, uh, but the other two, let's have a quick look at first. So that's obviously, you know, in a relatively small session, that's quite a bit of PSMA for the first time in, in a big session at ASCO. Um, the other two, Oliver, you discussed with um, Alicia yesterday as well, were imaging-related studies. One is the, um, the Condor study, uh, led by Mike Morris from uh, Memorial, and this is looking at DCF, PYL, um, a ligand we're very familiar with here as well, um, in the biochemical recurrence setting. So these were uh, predominantly men who had a radical prostatectomy. Um, uh, I think the, the cohort size was about 217 patients, 14 sites, um, and they all had DCF-PYL with a median PSA of around 0.8. So relatively low, but not super low, I would say, um, biochemi by our standards, biochemical recurrence. Um, and what this was looking at was um, uh, uh, what they called correct localization rate, which you explained very nicely to Alicia uh, as well. Um, and they had a composite standard of truth for what would define whether these scans were right or not. And overall, they, they had a, a correct localization rate of 89%, um, and that equates to, um, I was particularly interested in the lower PSAs, in those men with PSAs below 0 0.5, which I think is the sweet spot. That's when we're considering salvage radiotherapy or other options. Um, uh, about 36% of, 
of patients had a, a positive scan uh, with corresponding management impact. So, Oliver, um, that's a quick overview of you know what looks like what we're very familiar with the, the way PSMA, whether it's PSMA eleven or PYL, performs in the biochemical recurrence setting. This trial is set up to try and get um, FDA registration uh, for for PSMA DCF PYL uh, in the US. So, w- what are your thoughts on the significance of this study? Well, you know, I, I think in the end, this trial is going to be remembered for having met the FDA benchmarks. And the FDA benchmarks were actually set quite low. Uh, they, they, they were looking at something that the correct localization rate would be um, somewhere to 20 to 30%. And, then, and of course, this is in the, the mid to high 80s, depending on the reader. There were three different readers and, and, and a little bit of difference uh, in the correct localization rate uh, by the reader. But this trial, I think, is most going to be remembered because it was done in concert with the FDA and I think is likely to lead to an FDA approval. And that's really sweet because we're so overdue in the U.S. to have this delightful imaging that you've been familiar with for years. Michael, any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I agree with Oliver. I think there's a desperate need to get PSMA PET FDA approved and uh, this trial will hopefully uh, achieve that for DCF-PYL. I think there's also an application in for Gallium PSMA 11 from the UCLA UCSF group. And I think it would be great to see both of those imaging agents uh, FDA approved as quickly as possible, uh, because once that occurs, then they can be uh, you know, put in all the future clinical trials that occur in this space, because I think ultimately we should be doing more PSMA PET and less uh, CT and bone scans and the way to accumulate that evidence will be to incorporate it into the next phase three trials. And we, it's challenging to do that until the actual imaging agent is FDA approved. Uh, it's an interesting trial from a design point of view. The CLR, collect correct localization rate, is a very intriguing endpoint. Uh, Declan, you'll be very familiar with your own trial, the pro-PSMA trial that was published in mm-hmm. The Lancet only a few months ago. And uh, we had to adopt... Uh, we didn't use that terminology, but if you look at our endpoint, there are some similarities. It was a composite endpoint. It involved both histopathology, but also other parameters that could lead to a true positive. And I think you need to do that because it is simply not feasible to biopsy every lesion in men with metastatic disease. And also histopathology is subject to sampling error. Uh, so we do need more endpoints similar to CLR depending on the trial. So it's great to define that. Yeah, and I think that is the take-home message, which we'll, we'll all welcome having this agent FDA approved in the US for biochemical recurrence. But the other um, abstract um, uh, is different for two reasons. The one presented by uh, Tom Hope, um, it was using PSMA11, so gallium-68 uh, generator-driven, dr- uh, um, and it was a prospective study in the primary staging setting, but particularly looking at um, uh, uh, pelvic lymph node uh, positive rates at radical prostatectomy. So they had a, well, it's actually a part of a larger trial of over 600 patients, but they reported the 277 who had a radical prostatectomy uh, over on the West Coast of the US, uh, and they all had a PSMA 11 scan prior to radical prostatectomy and lymph node dissection. Um, so a relatively high risk or high intermediate risk like pro-PSMA uh, population, and the positive scan rate for nodes was um, 14%. 
Um, so what we, of course, we're interested in is the, the sensitivity, the positive predictive value uh, and so on of this study. Um, and there, I, I must say, uh, typically, uh, as we see as well, specificity very high, you know, 95% specificity. And um, if these things light up, it's always right. But they seem to be a little disappointed in their sensitivity um, uh, of about 40% uh, with a positive predictive value of 75%. And I must say, I, I thought that was probably about right. Realistically, that's our experience. If you're comparing imaging, even very good imaging with you know histopathology on lymph nodes we don't expect to see very high sensitivity in my mind but 40 percent um, is the sensitivity uh, that they reported so oliver um, what are your thoughts on, on this yeah well you know i think you said a while back when that you know histopathology is under a microscope and you know no imaging is ever going to recapitulate what a microscope can do one of the real problems is the sampling errors. And, and uh, Tom, in his presentation, pointed out several instances where oh, he thinks the scan was really right and the actual lymph nodes were wrong. So you end up in this situation where the true positives are not actually true positives because of the problems in the tissue acquisition. Now, uh, one thing he did point out, and I, and I think this is helpful, that if you looked at some cross-sectional imaging, the Cascan and MRIs, and you got nodes that were a little larger than a centimeter, then the sensitivity would go up to 0.68. And if you looked at those with a higher PSA, and the medium was about 11 and then trial, that you ended up with a greater sensitivity in those with a higher PSA. Again, pretty intuitively obvious, but the, the problem is that it is extremely difficult to prove that a positive scan represents a positive event, but histopathology is your gold standard. And I'm in more vital to actually believe the scan than I am the histopathology because of the sampling error. You don't have any sampling error with the scan. And so how is this going to be incorporated into practice? And this gets back into your trial design and determining the positives and how you determine what is truly positive. And it is a composite. And I'll simply say that I think as time evolves, we're going to be using these scans, even in the intermediate high-risk setting, despite the shortcomings that were noted in Tom Hope's presentation, simply because it is so much better than a CAT scan or bone scan or an MRI. So much better. Yeah, I'd like to jump in and say that the gold standard is not histopathology. Uh, the best gold standard is actually patient follow-up. So you need to incorporate a measure of, well, what happened in six months time? Because if the lymph node doubled in size and then you biopsy it six months later and it was prostate cancer, you know at baseline it was prostate cancer and missed. Uh, so we do need a composite endpoint. Histopathology is part of that, but it's not the be and, and end all. It's also interesting to look at the ProTSMA study because our sensitivity in that study was 85%, which is significantly higher and our patient group was Gleason grade group three, four, five. And now not all our patients went on to have a pelvic lymph node dissection because some patients were treated with radiation. So I think that's part of it, but there's still a very large difference. Uh, I'm not sure we can totally explain that today. Uh, it would be interesting uh, to look at some central reading and see how our reporting sensitivity does differ from other places in the world. I I'm not quite sure. There's a few unanswered questions there. And look, it's, I think it's clear if we summarise that 
both of these agents, uh, as you've spoken about before, both Michael and Oliver, PSMA 11, DCF, PYL, even the other PSMA tracers, uh, 1007, THP even, they're all good. All of these small molecule PSMA ligands are all very good at detection, whether it's in the biochemical recurrence setting, whether it's in the primary staging setting, and these nice, nice data sets are now beginning to show that. The big question, which they haven't uh, delivered to us, is they've, rep- were, as we did, reporting management impact, but it's still not clear uh, how having this more accurate information may improve outcomes for patients and I suppose that's that's what's not yet answered Oliver um, in this setting um, but I, I must say and we've, we've written quite a lot about this before but I think just closing our eyes uh, and saying oh we there's no point seeing that we don't know does it improve outcomes is, is not a, a reasonable strategy I think we just have to say well let, look let's have the best information and then we just will still have to figure out um, what is the best way to tailor the management for the patient to see can we improve the outcomes but these studies in localized prostate cancer you know unfortunately take 15 years to show that we improve outcomes. Yeah, well, I mean, one of, one of the real deficiencies, as you well know, is it, there, there was no attempt to show improvement in clinical outcomes with CAT scan and bone scan and, you know, MRI. And it took us years to actually even look at MRI localization of tumors and to demonstrate that that made a difference when you're doing multiparametric MRI at the times of diagnosis and using biopsies to guide um, your, 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 your actions. So, you know, it's, it's a big step to move from imaging to clinical correlates. Certainly it would be best if we could do that, but it, there's a large amount of data now, particularly in the use of SPRT or SABRE, whatever term that you prefer for targeted radiation, that it can make a favorable impact on patients' lives. Being able to avoid ADT, being able to prolong the time uh, of, of sensitive disease. You know, these are things that do positively impact the patient's life. Yeah, I think it's quite clear, despite some of the differences in these studies and some of these open questions that with PSMA PET, it's just a matter of when, not if it'll be the accepted standard of care. I think that's quite clear. Um, I think that one of the other beauties, of course, in this field is that we're not just doing imaging, but we can do theranostics and uh, we're all you know, very proud of, of Michael for uh, his presentation on the therapy trial at, uh, at ASCO, getting an oral presentation and, and really showing the uh, superiority of lutetium PSMA over cabazitaxel in a 200-patient randomised um, phase two trial sponsored by ANZUP. Uh, Michael, would you like to share some of, your, uh, some of the results with us and uh, some of your thoughts on how this will impact on, on practice and next steps? Sure. So this was the initial results of the therapy trial. And the primary endpoint was a PSA response over 50%, and that occurred in 66% of men randomised to the lutetium PSMA arm, compared to 37% in those randomised to the carbazitaxel arm, Uh, so with non-overlapping confidence intervals. So that's a 29% absolute improvement in that endpoint. That's a really large difference in that endpoint. And uh, we also report in this preliminary first analysis PSA progression-free survival, which had a hazard ratio of 0.69, favouring lutetium PSMA, and adverse events. And we saw G3-4 toxicities in 35% of men who received lutetium PSMA compared to 54% of men who received uh, carbazitaxel. So I think the take-home message there is that lutetium PSMA appears to have higher, or it has higher activity than carbazitaxel, with lower G3-4 adverse events and a PSA-PFS favoring lutetium PSMA. Where we're going with this is patients are still in active follow-up on the study and we uh, will report radiologic PFS. It has been collected as part of this study 
Uh, we'll also report overall survival and we'll also report uh, quality of life. I think these are other key endpoints and uh, we are awaiting 170 uh, progression events. And when that occurs, that will trigger the next analysis and that will also trigger our uh, manuscript uh, to publication. And, and we hope that that will occur in the second half of this year. And I think, Michael, one of the key points to make here is, and, and if you could uh, describe this to us, is how you selected patients for this, uh, for this trial, because there are some differences between therapy and, and vision, uh, which is obviously the ongoing phase three trial that Oliver's uh, integrally involved with. So do you want to tell us about how you selected patients for, um, to be eligible for PSMA-based therapy in this, uh, in this trial? So probably uniquely, we used a quantitative PET parameter. And you can put an area around a hotspot on a PET scan and get what's called an SUV or standardized uptake value. And that's a measure of the intensity of uptake. And uh, that's, I don't think, been used in a phase two or even phase three randomized trial to date, but really with close collaboration between nuclear medicine and medical oncology in this trial design, we aimed for optimal and uh, we... Uh, measured the SUV uh, at sites of tumour. This was done centrally, so all PSMA FDG PET scans were uploaded to a uh, internet website, and uh, then uh, that was read centrally. And we mandated that the intensity of tumour uptake at an SUV over 20 at sites of tumour, and an SUV max of over 10 at sites of uh, measurable disease. Uh, and using that threshold, we found actually that 28%, so roughly 30% of men, were not suitable uh, for uh, ongoing treatment uh, in this study. And importantly, that also included FDG PET, so sites that were FDG positive, PSMA negative, that we call discordant disease. Uh, even if you had high enough PSMA expression at other sites, you were not suitable. Uh, and uh, that's a really unique aspect to the study, really careful patient selection. I see that as a key strength of the study. It means we're really personalizing care. I think if we didn't, if we treated those 28% that we excluded, I think this would have had to be a 400, 500 patient study to find the same results. So by enriching uh, patients that are truly likely to benefit for this therapy, I think we've done a great thing both for patients and also for the trial design. And Oliver, we're very keen to get your thoughts on uh, on therapy. Uh, what's your take on uh, on the data and, and and where we're going with this? Well, you know, let me first of all say congratulations in in the most sincere ways. I uh, I think it's a fabulous trial. Uh, to me, it was the highlight uh, uh, of ASCO. Uh, it was the most important prostate cancer trial that was presented, and you guys pulled it off. Uh, did a fabulous job and. Uh, Michael, your leadership was, was absolutely key, but it takes a big team effort and you brought that team together. So congratulations, that's number one. Um, number two, you know, I, I think the PSA endpoint does uh, have a certain attractiveness, may have certain pitfalls as well. You know, one of the things that we found is that hormonal therapies will typically perform quite well when it comes to PSA declines. And then the chemotherapies may not perform quite as well. But if you look on kind of a, a, a PSA decline basis, then cabazitaxel may actually perform a little better than you might anticipate based on the PSA decline. So I'm going to be extremely interested in the overall survival, the radiographic progression advance that you've described. And cabazitaxel is a, a real drug. 
Um, you know, it's it, it, it's uh, I was involved with that original Tropic trial and subsequently in First Ad. It's uh, it, it, it's a it's a drug that that has a little more activity than you might anticipate based on the PSA decline rate. So that's something I'm going to be watching with a great deal of interest is how these subsequent endpoints will perform. Um, Michael, one of the things that, that I was really impressed with uh, with the adverse events, and you pointed out you know, immediately one of the attributes of the of the therapy is that the adverse events were low and the tolerability was high. I mean, I think you had one patient that had to discontinue based on this dosing regimen, and I thought that was fantastic. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind, is your dosing regimen, the 8.5, 8.0, 7.5, et cetera, um, which I was quite intrigued with, and I really liked, by the way, because I think you're going to have a better therapeutic ratio for those initial doses as opposed to the subsequent doses. And I wanted to hear a little bit about your reasoning about how you chose the dosing scheme and how many doses would actually be received by the patient and how many actually went to the total of six doses of PSMA. So if you don't mind, let me ask that question because I'm curious. Yeah, no, it's a great question, Oliver. Uh, this trial was designed in 2016 and back then, uh, over this time, we've seen PSMA 617 change hands or ownership three times uh, to Endocyte and then to Novartis during the course uh, of this trial. Uh, so when we designed this trial, actually the asset was owned by ABX. And for this trial, the lutetium PSMA 617 was made in hospital radiopharmacies at each of these those 11 sites. That's quite a different model to the vision trial, where obviously it's made commercially and centrally and distributed to sites. That gave us a little bit flex of flexibility because it means as we design this trial, the hospitals making it on site could choose exactly how much administered activity to deliver to the patient. That's a little bit more difficult if you're going to uh, distribute it uh, centrally. You'd want a more fixed standardised dose. It makes it more commercially viable. Uh, so that's one of the reasons we just had that flexibility. Perhaps if we were redesigning this trial today and it was central production, maybe we would just choose 7.5 gigabecrels like the vision trial. It's perhaps not as optimal, but it's pretty good. And does it really make a difference? I don't know. In the end of the day, we want this therapy to be widely available to men and therefore we need a, a practical approach. But the reason, the rationale there was that uh, your dose actually should be uh, associated with the burden of disease uh, because you get a sink effect. The radiation, the radioligand gets taken up into tumors and whatever's not taken up into tumors goes to your salivary glands and is renally excreted. So if you've got a bigger tumor burden, you need a bigger dose of uh, the compound. And it stands to reason at the beginning, you've got the largest burden of tumor. So we start with 8.5 gigabecrels. And if you make it to cycle six, you get six gigabecrels. And we also incorporated a 20% dose reduction. If you had a you know, G3 thrombocytopenia, you then had a 20% dose reduction thereafter. And I think this is slightly more optimal than the fixed dose, but to be honest, in our current trials, uh, the PRINCE trial and the uh, LUPARP trial, particularly the LUPARP trial, which is our combination with a PARP inhibitor, we've just gone for a standardised dose of 7.5 gigabecrels like the VISION trial. Uh, I think it would be difficult to show superiority of our regimen versus a fixed 7.5 gigabecrel. You probably need to undertake another 500 patient study to do that. I don't know that anyone's ever going to do that. Uh, and your other question was around numbers of how many patients uh, got to the six cycles. I just don't have that information in front of me. So I'll have to take that question offline and get back to you. 
Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And I mean, the reason I ask is, you know, there's clearly in my mind a little more punch to those first, second, or third cycles as opposed to the fourth, fifth, and sixth. Yeah. And the, the, the utility of the subsequent cycles, particularly when you may be diminishing the target, I think is uh, a little bit debatable. And uh, of course, I've been part of those debates in combination with AAA and Novartis and, and society, et cetera. Uh, but nevertheless, I think there still is a bit unknown about what might be the optimal number of dosing. Uh, I certainly liked your dosing schema and the way you explained it. If it doesn't go to a tumor, it's going to go elsewhere. There's this yin and yang principle, which you've showed through some of your prior studies, which I think is very valuable for clinicians to understand. Yeah, so lots of work to be done moving forward. I mean, there's interesting work out of uh, Well Cornell where they're given 15 gigabrackles of lutetian PSA yeah. 617 in two divided doses at two weeks apart as a general theranostic principle. And we see this from radioactive iodine in thyroid cancer to lutetium dotatated neuroendocrine tumor. Your first dose is probably the most important. After that, your tumors do develop some uh, radio resistance mechanisms. Uh, so we don't see a lot of toxicity with this agent. So they certainly moved to move that administered radioactivity higher. Maybe we should be giving more like 15 gigabecrels, even 20 gigabecrels for that cycle one. And, and who knows what we will see. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns. So, and of course, oh, later in the year, Oliver, uh, sorry to cut across you, we are looking forward to you reading out Vision, we hope. Um, uh, the big Vision registration trial is fully accrued um, and you're just uh, waiting on events. So um, later in the year or early next year? You know, possibly we, we um, have some hopes for, for ESMO, but it's an event-driven trial. And I will say that some of the events have been a little slower to appear than they might have been anticipated. Uh, which could be a good thing. We don't really know um, because it depends on events, both in control and the experimental arm. Uh, but let's just say that there's a possibility of ESMO, but if it's not ESMO, then I feel pretty confident the ESCOGU next year. Terrific. We could talk about this for hours and hours, but uh, in the last few moments, if you don't mind, we're going to whip around a couple of other uh, topics um, uh, just to get your quick thoughts on uh, Renew. Uh, yeah, Oliver, one uh, one of the other as abstracts I wanted to bring up was the HERO trial, um, which was led by Neil Shaw and colleagues, and it was a phase three trial that compared an oral GnRH antagonist, uh, Relugulix, um, and comparing that to standard LHRH agonist treatment with Luprolide. Um, and they randomised just over 930 patients in a two-to-one fashion to receive either Relugulix or um, Luprolide. Um, and they looked at the primary endpoint being the ability to achieve testosterone suppression at 48 weeks. Um, just wanted to get your uh, thoughts on that and the key take-home messages from that trial. Well, it, it was quite interesting that this oral antagonist does work. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. And uh, I was a little bit surprised at how well it worked. I mean, it worked fast, uh, which you might anticipate for an antagonist. Uh, but it worked over the period of the trial. Uh, it was also readily reversible. I don't know if you saw the reversibility of, of the inhibition of the LHRH receptor, but it turned out that, you know, if you stop the therapy, that you could recover your antigen axis pretty quickly. Yeah. I think one of the more interesting aspects of the trial, and not one I necessarily would have anticipated, was on the cardiovascular events, which 
actually were better. And for those who might not know, not only was this presented at ASCO, but it was also a New England Journal Medicine um, paper, and that is now out. Uh, so you can see it online. Um, and the event rate for the cardiovascular illnesses were lower in those treated with the oral antagonist. And I, I, I've dug into it a little bit. I think there's a, still a little bit of question in my own mind is how reliable, how important that is. But nevertheless, I think that could be a distinguishing feature. Uh, bottom line is oral antagonist work and the cardiovascular events are quite interesting. Definitely one with a lot of potential. Very interesting. Uh, another quick one, um, M0CRPC. We don't want to go into this in detail, but just you know, brief take-home message. We now see that the, the, the three agents um, active in this space, the AOR-targeted agents, are all now reporting uh, an OS uh, for patients who receive um, high-risk M0CRPC, M0 by conventional imaging, we should say, um, who receive um, uh, one of these amides, and now there's OS. Um, no surprises there, I suppose, Oliver. Um, so is this it? Is this end of story? We're now going to be bringing all these amides forward to high-risk M0, or, of course, if they have a PET scan, we see it on the PET scan in almost all these patients. Yeah, well, you know, actually, I think it's a lot of points. That's the more interesting one. Um, there's, there's no doubt that if you had done PSMA imaging that the vast majority of these patients would have actually had uptake somewhere. And there, there was a, a nice little analysis uh, done uh, to demonstrate that the number would be about 96% would actually have PSMA uptake if you followed kind of the rules that, that were typical for this trial with a PSA doubling time of less than 10 months, et cetera. So is there something to gain by the addition of imaging in this space? And the answer is, I don't really know. I do know that early hormonal therapy does make a difference for those in this high-risk category, particularly for the PSA doubling times of less than 10 months. I was a little bit disturbed, quite frankly, that the FDA chose to ignore the PSA doubling time and the actual approvals for all three agents. And I do worry a little bit about overuse among those who may have the slow PSA doubling times that I feel remain an unproven use for this group of agents. So um, will PSA imaging make a difference? You raised it, I agree. Uh, is the OS surprising? Not to me, uh, but it does give it a nice underscore and indicates that earlier use of more effective hormonal therapy can have a big impact. And that's the sort of take home message for me. Excellent. Um, last couple of minutes, uh, Arun, over to you. Yeah, I had um, there was a couple of the oral abstracts in prostate on uh, on biomarker work. Putting on my translational hat, um, some some nice work from the SWOG group showing the prognostic value of CTC enumeration uh, prior to th um, commencing therapy with ADT plus or minus or terenol in metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. Um, and the other ab um, oral abstract that caught my attention from a translational perspective was um, from from Johan de Bono's group showing the prognostic value of both measuring baseline ctDNA in the um, ABI plus uh, AKT inhibitor phase two trial, and then and then monitoring declines in uh, in ctDNA on therapy. Um, Oliver, um, very quickly, your thoughts on those two uh, those two studies? Yeah, so the the ctDNA I think is particularly important, and you know we're we're evolving so rapidly in that field. It's almost like like imaging with, with its own sort of steroidal component. Uh, when, you're, when you're looking at the ctDNA, of course, the quantification is really the first step, and understanding what all those alterations are is, is another very critical step. Uh, there, there's a, a 
previous paper done uh, with cabazitaxel docetaxel that showed with the taxanes, and that, that was published based on the Basilica trial and the first ANA trial demonstrating the importance of CKDNA. This sort of underscores it in a different area from the Bono group. And there's more to come here. There's much, much more to come. But the bottom line is I think CTDNA is here to stay. With regard to the enumeration of CTCs, I'm gonna be a little bit critical because I, I think that even though it's an important biomarker, there's so much more that we can do today going beyond enumeration. Yes, we can count these cells. Yes, we can say that a quantitation makes a difference. But I think a lot of the critical information is gonna be embedded in what's in those CTCs. It's not just how many of them are there, it's whether or not there might be Wnt signaling activation, whether or not there might be PSMA expression, or as you've shown through a variety of RNA testing, that there could be a series of biomarkers that are critical for prognosis and potentially for monitoring response resistance. So the CTC, nice to be able to have the data, but there's so much more that I want to be able to understand on the basis of CTCs and their transcripts. The CTDNA, very important, but again, I want to see more in terms of depth of discussion and the relationship between individual genes and outcomes. Terrific. And for more reading, uh, Arun has just published a very nice paper in European Urology yesterday, uh, a senior author from his lab group looking at liquid biopsies in this setting, perhaps a podcast for the future. And then finally, Oliver, over to you. Any other quick uh, highlights you want to give us um, uh, before we let you go? Well, well, you know, the, the one that I thought was a little bit interesting that I wanted just to mention is, is the selective protein degrader, the PROTEC, if you will. Uh, ARV110. Dan Petrolak uh, gave a little synopsis on the phase one. And what I'll say is that there were a couple of surprises. Number one, which is maybe not a surprise, is it actually did work. There was protein degradation in AR as being able to measure it in a single patient. And there was clinical activity for at least two patients. Both of the patients in whom there was activity had an 878 mutation, which I thought was a little bit interesting. So we're going to learn a lot more about AR degradation, and I think this could be a promising agent. It still is not dose-escalated to the extent where I think that it's optimal. And so pay attention. This one, I think, could be interesting in the years ahead. Fantastic. Thank you. And we could go literally for hours and hours. Every time you say something, I'm thinking of another highlight for myself. But Oliver, um, thank you very much for uh, uh, giving us your time and your expertise uh, uh, on GUCast uh, today. It's always a pleasure to uh, listen to you. Um, and um, uh, I must say, uh, virtual ASCO has, has some merits, but um, uh, having these conversations around around a coffee table or in the trade area uh, just doesn't happen. So we, we try to replicate a little of that, a little of that here on GUCast. So thank you uh, very much. Um, and thank you to Michael, who has uh, signed off. Uh, and thank you to Arun Azad for joining us as a guest in the studios. Um, that's it from uh, you and I today, Renu. That's it for today. We will be back uh, later in the week with some ASCO GU highlights focusing on renal cancer and bladder cancer. Uh, we're going to be joined by Monty Pal uh, and Ash Kemat, uh, Petrus Grivas and others uh, respectively later in the week. And with that, uh, we bid you farewell. Thank you.